Please turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, find verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1, where we'll focus our attention this morning. How do you feel about work? Some of the most popular songs in modern music history take on how we feel about work. Many of them I can't quote because of how they feel about work. But maybe you feel the desperation of Dolly Parton and her nine to five, just trying to make a living. Maybe you as a Christian, you, you know you should be excited about work. You know you should be uh, motivated to go to work because supposedly God gets glory from work. But your theology of work is rather shallow and informed, like, informed by psalms like, you know, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go by the seven dwarves, and the only thing you know to do at work to get you through work is what seven, or what the Snow White says, you know, whistle while you work. Sometimes work is just work. Every job, even those people who absolutely love their job, every job seems to have elements of the job where uh, if you weren't getting paid, you would not want to be there. Work. Is there more to it than we give it credit for? Can our temporal vocations foster eternal affections? Can our earthly labors bring heavenly glory? Maybe our lives of work would say no, but the Bible would say yes. God in his grace, through his love for his creation and the clarity of his word, we, we find that our work has eternal purpose. Our work, whether we're a math teacher or a welder or a homemaker, a, a dentist or a farmer, or a pastor or a doctor, or a babysitter, or a delivery truck driver, or a police officer, or a retiree who's recently picked up an opportunity to serve here and there, all of these are God's amazing and wonderful gifts to his people to provide for and care for not just them, but his whole creation through their work to glorify him. Work is an amazing thing. And if you were with us last week, you saw how the Bible speaks into our work. We were reminded that though work has fallen on hard times, the Bible unequivocally reports that work is good. When our feelings don't match the truth, we see that our work is good even if we don't feel like it. God says our work is good. Through his example as the ultimate worker and through his word, we see work is good. Even though sin has caused work to be difficult and inefficient and labor's been intensified and evil's been magnified and toil's been trivialized, God's truth is that we were created for his glory in his image to be those who work for him. We follow the ultimate worker, our heavenly father. After all, our creation in God's image equips us and demands us to work. Work is not demeaning. But work is a path to glory because God created us to bear his image, to reflect his glory to his creation. And through work, we have every opportunity to obey God on this side of Eden's gates. Our work has moved from the garden, serving uh, a loving God in his perfect creation to now redeemed humanity outside of the garden, serving a loving God by advancing his agenda to his creation, to see him redeem his creation for his glory, for himself. 
those that he chooses to lavish his grace upon. And we do this by prioritizing his commands even in our work. To love him with our whole being on Monday just as we claim that we do on Sunday. And we love him by caring for and proclaiming him to the world around us, fulfilling the great commission and the great commandments is how we love God in our work. The Bible has a lot to say about work. You'll see it up here on the slide. We looked at this last week. And we began to consider last week, not only does the Bible give us theological foundation for our work and worshipful motivation for our work, but also practical help in the nitty-gritty of our work. Today, Colossians 3.22, we'll see how we can live our earthly calling and see God receive eternal glory from our daily grind. So please stand with me. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll read verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, what a a privilege it is to know who we are, saved by your grace through faith in Christ. Those who have an eternal home with you, waiting for us. And yet here we are. So help us. Help us to live this life now that will soon be past. Help it to live for the things that we trust will last. Help us to look at what you have given to us to apply it to our lives and to live for your glory. Help it to change our heart, not just our actions. Help it to, get, help, help it to give us the right motivation, not just the right method. Help us to live for you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you. You can be seated. Glory in the grind, part two. Whether you've punched the clock for the last time, or you're still in school, or you're on the factory floor, or you're climbing the corporate ladder, I trust God will help you this morning see how your earthly calling and his requirements for your earthly calling give glory and dignity to your work no matter what you do. You have, no matter your, your occupation, you have an opportunity in what you do and how you spend most of your time. You have the opportunity in your labor and your toil and your efforts to glorify God and make much of him through all that you do or not. It's really your choice. You have an opportunity to squander one of the greatest blessings God has given his people, work. Last week, we began verse 22. We spent the whole time considering what it means when, Paul, when Paul's talking to the bondservants, which we saw were slaves. Considered Paul's motivation for directing his comments to the slaves, where we found for all of us our humble identity. 
Obviously, the Colossian church, who was attended by both, remember, Philemon and Onesimus, Onesimus before he ran away, it's a church that understands the difficulties in the relationships that Paul has here between masters and slaves. On a spiritual level, Paul will not allow for there to be any distinction. That's the whole point of Colossians 3.11. There, there is no difference in God's eyes between the master and the slave. But the letter from Paul to the slave owner Philemon, its own letter, reminds us there are earthly obligations in this life that our heavenly desires do not wipe away. There are earthly identities that our heavenly aspirations do not negate. Though slavery in the Roman Empire was different than slavery in the past of our country, it was still slavery. No slave wanted to be a slave. In this passage, we see that in Paul's theology, even a slave, Paul says, should be a good Slave and defines what a good slave is. The reason is because, in fact, our heavenly motivations can be promoted through our earthly occupations. So keep in mind the end of verse 22. The godly drive we have is because we fear the Lord. We'll get close to that today. Then the end of verse 24. What's the, the motivation? Our efforts are designed to serve the Lord Christ. In the end of chapter 4, verse 1, what's the accountability that the master has in this culture? The accountability is not to the standards of this earth or the morals of culture or the ethics of our day or our society. Our obligation is to our master in heaven. But Colossians is a letter written with a good amount of spice. This is not like the Indian food you get at an American restaurant. This is like the Indian food you get on a food truck in LA. Like your eyes just start burning when you grab the box. Like this is some serious stuff that Paul is dealing with. Can you imagine being a slave or a master in Colossae when this letter from Paul is being read? Hearing these truths from Paul? Can you imagine being a slave with an ugly and awful, terrible life and an earthly master who is a worthless human. And Paul says, you need to obey in everything. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a master, considering uh, these slaves your whole life as your own property in your own domain, hearing Paul say, yo, they're not yours. They're Christ's. And reminding you that they're equal to you. Things we should take for granted would have been very assaulting in Paul's day. This humble identity that Paul addresses in the midst of the Colossian congregation reminds us that there is nothing off limits to the lordship of creation and Christ. Every square inch of all the earth is all Christ to do with what he says. And so Paul addresses these slaves, and we can't miss his argument. If he wanted to, he would have addressed the dock or he would have addressed the shop workers or the farmers or the middle class, the textile employees, but he didn't. He addressed the slaves. And when we argue from the greater to the lesser, the harder to the easier, if these things should be true for a slave who's viewed as property and owned by someone else, should they not be true for us as employees? Because we see dignity in the life-dominating and soul-assaulting occupation of slavery, we see dignity in every occupation. 
The humble identity that Paul tackles head-on gives evidence to all of us, no matter who we are or who those at work tell us we are. All of our earthly occupations come with a humble identity. Paul embraced this as an apostle, one uniquely trained and set it apart by the Lord to speak for the Lord. What was his most common self-description? The church in Rome, Paul says, Romans 1.1, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus to the church in Rome, to his disciple Titus. He says to Titus, Paul, a doulos, a slave. I think we have to ask ourselves why. Why was Paul so comfortable with this title as a slave of Christ or this description of himself or even this identity? Because Paul knew he was in every wonderful way purchased cared for, and owned by the perfect master, Christ. Paul knew he was purchased out of slavery to sin into the family of God. That Christ himself had paid for Paul. Christ didn't pay for himself out of his riches. He paid for himself with his life. When Paul couldn't, Christ did. What Paul couldn't do, Christ had already done. And Paul says, because I'm in him, I'm bought with a price, I'll live for him as my master. Who had more earthly say in the early church than Paul? Peter thought he did once. You can read how that went in Acts chapter 15. Paul clarified for Peter that Paul was, in fact, right. Peter was wrong. Paul was the strongest, clearest, most compelling voice in all of early Christianity. And Paul accepted and adopted and embraced this humble identity of a bondservant, of a slave. I wonder if our current conundrum with work in our culture and our world and even our church might be that so many of us think we are owed so much instead of recognizing what we owe Christ Is everything. And when we owe Christ everything, we can live for Him in anything. Because humility sets the stage for every occupation. We'll talk about calling more later, but isn't it very common for us to think that we're supposed to find a job that fits our gifts and pays us what we think we need to live, how we think we should live, and gives us the time off we think we deserve? We we think we deserve those things. Can I ask, where does that come from? I'll answer like this. It doesn't come from humility. Consider the humility Jesus displayed in his earthly labor. As you were reminded last week, he was a builder, a carpenter, yes, but in the field of stone. He was, in fact, a common laborer. I imagine Jesus was good at what he did to a degree, But because he didn't do anything all that spectacular, there was a pretty heavy glass ceiling for a stonemason. He didn't garner any fame for his building. He worked hard in a humble occupation because he was humble. This ought to enter into how we think about the dignity of work. And maybe you say, well, nobody sees what I do. I don't know how God can get glory from what I do. Nobody even sees it. I work hard, but the boss doesn't notice it. I labor tirelessly and nobody seems to benefit. How can God really get glory from my grind? Let me put it in this 
perspective of Jesus' occupation for a moment. Here's what Jesus did before his ministry for 30 years of his life once he became a worker. Jesus chipped big rocks into smaller rocks and he stacked rocks. That's what Jesus did with his life. That was a, that was a job. That was hard, dirty, demanding, probably even demeaning work. And I'm obviously not knocking Jesus, but hopefully I'm rocking your boat and how you understand the dignity of your work, whether it's important or not. Christ took on flesh and lived the humble identity. Why? So that you could find that humility is not bad, but in fact humility is good, and anyone who stands before God can only be humble. A humble identity yields fruit in a humble occupation. I love the connection that Hugh Latimer, who was burned at the stake with Bishop Ridley at the beginning of the Marian Martyrs and early 1600s Puritanism in England, I love what Hugh Latimer has to say about Jesus' occupation and our work. He says, this is a wonderful thing, that the Savior of the world and the King above all kings was not ashamed to labor Yea, and to use so simple an occupation, here he did sanctify all manner of occupations. And when you see sanctify, he's using it in the sense of setting apart unto, unto God for God, like we sanctify, like the Old Testament sanctifies temple instruments. That's what Latimer's saying. Perkins says the same thing. Same thing. William Perkins, a father of Puritanism, he says, Good God looks not at the work, but at the heart of the worker. Howsoever unimpressive they appear outwardly, yet they are sanctified. They're set apart for God, these works that we do. So roll back into the context of Colossians 3 and put yourself in the position of these house slaves in Colossae. Can you imagine a more earthly, undignified life? Society told them they were property. Their jobs were things like emptying poop pots. They washed feet. They did what other people who said they owned them said was below them. Slaves had to do it. They didn't have a choice to refuse. But Paul, what does he say? He says, do it for the Lord, and the Lord receives glory. Wow. Maybe you're unconvinced and you think that can't be that impressive to God to be a slave to others. Surely that's not what Paul means there. Well, listen to what Jesus says. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, Jesus defines being great for him as being a slave to others. He's not calling you to sell yourself into slavery. It's a picture of who we are in Christ and who we are according to him and what greatness means to him. Remember, James and John, they air their ignorance to their mom, wanting Jesus to give them a special status. And the result is, as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the last time to lay down his life for his own, we see this result of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be significant to him and great to him. I think it's important, Christian, don't confuse humility before the Lord for mediocrity with the world. 
It's not the same things. Jesus doesn't say it's bad to pursue greatness. He just defines greatness for us. You shouldn't be content with mediocrity. You should pursue greatness. But what is greatness? Jesus never tells us to settle for anything below greatness. But he defines true greatness for us by contrasting it with what the world views as great. Mark 10, 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. That's Jesus reminding us of what we know. Greatness to the world is a following. Or it's a people who do what you say or a product that promotes you, makes you look like something that you may or may not be. But verse 43 begins, but. So here's the contrast. But shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus says, you want to be great, then take on the identity of a table waiter, a servant. You want to be the greatest, then be prepared to take on the life of a slave who only does what their master tells them and desires. That's greatness to Christ. If your job is not immoral, you can be great in the eyes of Christ. If your job is not immoral, you can be the greatest in the eyes of Christ. Mark 10 teaches us You'll only bring glory to God in your grind proportionate to your humility in your job. The glory you bring God in your job can never exceed your humility. The world may look at you and be so impressed with you. Who cares? Jesus doesn't view you like the world views you. Who do you want to impress? If you do something great and you just can't help but take in the credit, that's wood, hay, and stubble on the last day. Your spouse, your coworker, your friends, all of us, we might be fooled. Jesus, no, not fooled. He knows who you work for. Is it him or you? So who are you at work, friend? Maybe you're the top of the totem pole at work. And maybe you're the guy holding the dumb end of the tape measure at work. It doesn't matter. How you live for the Lord That's what matters. What you do, not as much. If you live with a humble identity, willing to lay down who you are before the Lord, God will receive glory in your grind. Your earthly calling is to have and maintain a humble identity. And second, your earthly calling is one of comprehensive obedience. Look there at the beginning of verse 22. Obey in everything. Man, can you imagine hearing this? Knowing who you have to obey, thinking, what? Obey in everything? Paul is being as purposefully broad as language allows. In in everything, you're to obey to the fullest. This is, if you look up at verse 20, exactly what Paul tells children. It's the same. Obey in everything. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher of Rome, a contemporary to this letter, He defined a slave like this, not in terms of property, but in terms of will. This is shocking. Listen to this definition of a slave. A slave is one who does not have the right to refuse. If you don't have a humble identity, you will not have a comprehensive obedience. Again, ultimately, this is not to earthly masters, as Paul is about ready to tell us. This is to our heavenly master. We obey our heavenly master through comprehensive obedience to our earthly masters when they don't lead us into sin. 
Your calling to produce eternal glory from your daily grind is a calling of otherworldly obedience. You can't do this in the flesh. This world obeys when it benefits them. God's people are called to obey our earthly authorities comprehensively. Your boss tells you how she wants done what she believes is best, and what do you do? If you don't think it's best, absolutely, you're welcome to appeal and offer insight as appropriate, but what, is your, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to obey. You're supposed to follow out her will as it's supposed to be. Maybe say it's difficult, it's hard to follow the instructions of people who are mean or, or ungodly or don't share my values. Again, outside of sin, we comprehensively obey for our Heavenly Father. And we can expect that this process of learning to obey will be difficult. It was very difficult for Jesus. Jesus' obedience came through learning, and some of the learning was through what? Suffering. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. In our humanity, we can expect suffering. We can expect difficulty, but we should never allow suffering or difficulty to keep us from a comprehensive obedience to the authorities God has put over us. Our comprehensive obedience is an excellent display of our Christ-like integrity. Will you obey? Don't obey to be a good employee. Don't obey to get the employee of the month parking spot. You probably need the steps anyway. Don't obey to get a, good, to get a promotion. Obey because Christ saved you from a life of disobedience, and now you can live in obedience to people who can see it and understand that this guy is not the same as he used to be. This guy is different. We obey our earthly masters and employees in lowly jobs like Jesus or high-profile jobs like some of you have. We can trust God receives glory through the motivations of our heart. Third, woven through our earthly calling is a sensible perspective. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Immediately, we should consider how and why Paul highlights the location of these masters that we humbly and comprehensively obey. Why does he call them earthly masters? Because we have a heavenly master who is over all things. Remember, the theme of Colossians is Christ over all or Christ supreme. And, and chapter 1 describes our Savior in such beautiful terms and profound pictures. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. He's before all things and all things hold together in him. You can, you can imagine the slave in Colossae thinking, I want to obey him. And Paul says, you're right. So obey them. Obey your earthly masters, knowing that we have a real heavenly master. Paul makes clear the masters in Colossae were only earthly masters. They were masters according to the flesh, literally. Paul subtly reminded the readers of this major thing theme in this section. There's an ultimate master ruling over all things. The lordship of Christ dominates every relationship. No matter what earthly relationship is, Jesus reigns supreme over it. For us, there's an ultimate boss reigning over your, your earthly boss. And slaves of every age have rested their hopes of justice on that truth, and heaven has become vital. It's where their hope is not in things getting better on earth, but in things being set right in heaven. As you read Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1, that's what Paul is saying. Look, someday it will be right. Today is not it. 
Jesus' redemption is coming, but it has not happened here. And so while you give your time and your energy and your talent to an earthly employer, just remember they are that, an earthly employer. The Christian, remember how this chapter began, chapter 3, verse 1, the Christian is always supremely concerned with what? Heaven. Chapter 3, verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. But until then, you do what you have to. You obey your earthly masters. Our minds, our aspirations, our affections are to be heavenly. But we make much of our heavenly aspirations through our earthly duties. And so while we have earthly masters, the master that we ultimately answer to is always, every time, Christ, because he's the true Lord over all. And the lordship of Christ demands earthly obedience to earthly masters. Remember Jesus, he, he confounded the religious on the Temple Mount when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Here Paul says a similar thing. This, this is your duty. They're your earthly masters. Obey them. No, our longings and our goals reach and they always bend upward. We, we live on this earth in the most righteous way we can while we wait on God to redeem all things. And though our longings and our goals reach heavenward, we, we realize this is not heaven. There is no such thing as heaven on earth. You have to wait for heaven. We, we have a sensible perspective. Our, our eschatology is not over-realized. We recognize that all the fulfillment that we seek, all the beauty that God created in work is not going to be perfect here. This is not the garden. There is one coming, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, but this is not it. That's coming. It's not now. Now we pick up our cross and follow Christ. Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus doesn't promise you all the life and fulfillment that Joel Osteen does. He promises you difficulty. He promises heaven in the future, but now the cross to carry. If there are times when work feels like work, guess what? It's work. If there are times when your employer, your earthly master seems to be a disaster, then don't forget they are. But they are our earthly masters, and our hope is a heavenly hope. Our hope is a heavenly master. And that's how we maintain godliness in an ugly and ungodly environment. Our ultimate master is always heavenly, and our perspective is always bending upwards. How do you deal with sin and evil in a workplace? How do you deal with sin and evil from an earthly master? We deal with it sensibly. Would you expect an unbeliever to respond the way you do? You shouldn't. If an unbeliever and you always respond homogeneously to everything, one of you is confused. Would you expect their morality to match yours? It shouldn't. When you're pressured to sin and encouraged to overlook and laud evil, what should you do? Well, remember, they're your earthly masters. If you can't obey their unethical or evil commands, then you should expect difficulty in your earthly life. Don't expect that following the master of heaven uh, will cause and bring blessing from earthly masters that are at war with heaven. Jesus promised in some respects following him will bring enmity and suffering and persecution from the world. 
This is not merely a, a Sunday religious rights kind of statement. This is a Monday workplace reality. And as the woke agenda or the, the culture of death invades your work, there will be times when merely allowing others to be evil will be unacceptable. You'll be forced to comply or support or give a hearty approval and blessing to obvious sin. So what will you do? You'll obey your heavenly master. You have no option. But when you do, you obey your earthly master. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, you remember the apostles. They were in a simple ministry program. They would do a miracle, preach Christ, and get thrown in jail. It didn't last long. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they're like, hey, we must obey God rather than men because it, it was either obey God or man. So they chose to obey God, but they also knew what was coming. Difficulty, punishment, trial. Don't be surprised, Christian. You obey God, you should expect difficulty, punishment, trial. They knew what was coming, but instead of sinful obedience to earthly masters, their sensible perspective required that they obey their heavenly master and prepare for the earthly consequences. We should all expect these to come together. Lastly, with earthly masters, I think Paul is very helpfully encouraging these people that there's an expiration date on these earthly masters. Our obedience to earthly masters does not last forever. What happens to every man? They die. But we don't serve every man. We serve the God-man, the Lord of heaven. The psalmist says, Psalm 146, verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. I love that. But I love what Moses does even more. He kind of one-ups. I like how Moses says, Exodus 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I don't even know, is that longer? I don't know, but I like it better. Forever and ever. God gets the final say. God's the ultimate master. God's the only one here at the end of the day. God is the one that we answer to. Everything on earth is filtered through the glory of heaven, and everything on earth here one day will what? Be gone. God never will. So forth in your earthly calling for God to receive glory from heaven. From your daily grind, you live with an obvious integrity. Look at the next phrase in verse 22. Not by way of eyesight, eye service. Paul's contrasting our obedience with a lack of integrity uh, in an eye service or a facade of righteousness, you could say. Paul says, not by way of eye service. Christians are called to an obvious integrity, one that's open for anyone to see. This is extremely practical. Maybe, maybe this will help you. How long is your lunch hour? Hey, if you're salary, whatever, do what you want. But don't call it an hour if it's not an hour. If you leave at a quarter till noon and come back at a half past one, that is not an hour. Round that up to two. Don't we often give ourselves the benefit of the doubt? The world doesn't ever do that. You're fighting an uphill battle in how you're viewed. You don't need to fear man's view of you, but you must not fuel their derision of you and your Savior through a lack of your own personal integrity. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What's Peter's point? 
His point is that there will be trouble, but you cannot be the trouble. This is a, a battle for integrity. It's a battle as a follower of Christ that you must win. You're to be spotless in your reputation. If you say you're taking a lunch hour, it should be 55 minutes. If you say you're going to make a few calls over the weekend, don't make two, make five. Don't let interpretation or speculation tarnish your reputation because who are you saying you live like? Jesus. Jesus' integrity is at stake. So what do you do? You live with an obvious integrity. That means wisdom and effort combined in an open fashion to display that who you are is who you say you are. And if someone points at you as wrong, there's no evidence. If someone calls you lazy, there is no proof. Think of it like this. In your job as a believer, you should praise anyone who seeks to keep you accountable and check up on you or, or watch over you. Maybe you have an expense report aficionado in your office, and they want your receipts, and they want to check whether the receipts that you have match the funds that you say they're supposed to come out of, and they kind of get in your business, and you don't like it. Guess what? You should like it. Because have you done something wrong? Then enjoy it. That person's not a pain in your neck, but a tool of God to allow you to have an obvious integrity. If someone questions you as a Christian in the workplace, you should take joy in displaying the reality that you work hard when nobody is watching. And your dealings are always above board. A Christian investigated must be a Christian vindicated. Live for Christ. Who cares about the people who are watching you? Live for Christ and the people who are watching you will be surprised and thankful for you. Be perpetually and meticulously honest and trustworthy on the job. Always. Be on time. Do what you say you're going to do. I mean, today's changing workplace, there's companies that have something called unlimited paid time off. I thought that was a vacation or unemployment, but they call it unlimited paid time off. You get your stuff done, you can be gone. It's a lot of freedom. What do you think? Being abused? Absolutely. By Christians, may it never be. You want to stand out? Just love Christ. You'll stand out. Do everything for Christ in a way that makes much of him. And then be prepared that it will be offending to other people. But hopefully they think, what does she have that I don't? Why does she respond the way to these th or this way to these things and I can't? What is, he, what is he doing that makes him so different? Give a full day's work because Jesus matters, not because your boss is watching. I wonder if on our timesheets, thou shalt not steal was the watermark. Would they be any different? More people rob their employers by being slackers than by pilfering the petty cash. But Christians don't work for the approval of or the watching eye of their boss. They work for Christ. We don't care who's watching because we know Christ sees us. We're always working for him. You're welcome to come watch. We live that he is pleased. We live with an obvious integrity. When I was in seminary, I worked as a project manager for a construction company in Los Angeles. They did massive public works jobs, like 50 million-ish dollar total contracts, big old stuff. New libraries, public transit things, just monster contracts. 
And while I was there, we started working for one general contractor that God designed before the foundation of the world to be a thorn in my flesh. Several times they asked us for massive change order bids. Did the work to get the bid, put in the bids, accepted, do the work, bill for the work, and then guess what? Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's actually part of your contract. It's not a change order. This happened maybe five times. Came up to a massive amount of money. These guys were shady. They were stealing the money from my company. I could tell. And then one day I got a meeting with one of the guys who has his name on the side of the truck. Oh, man. So I explained my problems. He understood. So we had to go through arbitration to get this stuff worked out. 100% of what we build. The arbitrator says, you have told this general contractor you have to pay. But the whole time, this contractor's crying foul. Oh, these people are shady. These people, they're really stealing our money. This was supposed to be their stuff, blah, 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 blah. The end of the meeting, I'll never forget it. The company owner of the company that I worked with, he stood up and looked at this crook who owned the other company. He said, hey, money isn't everything to me. I love Jesus Christ. Save me from my sins. And he can save you from your sins too. Let's just split this. Just pay me 50%. Because I don't want anyone to ever think that I stole something from you. I about choked on my tongue. Because this was an amount of money like I had never seen before in my life. And he just gave half of it away to do what? To save his reputation? He had an an obvious integrity. He was not going to let anybody or any money muddle it. We should be the same. Fifth, and similarly, we must maintain an honest reputation, very close to obvious integrity. We cannot find our work is done by way of eye service as people pleasers. Those who have a reputation that they have built by pleasing people, everybody knows. Even your boss that you think is unaware knows it's fake Christians people pleasing is a lie your boss he understands it your co-workers they hate you for it so don't do it be real be authentic be truthful work hard when you're at work work hard when nobody's watching if someone starts watching and you start working harder that should be a problem you should recognize what you've just done And you should realize that either you're not working hard enough when nobody's watching or you turned yourself into a people pleaser. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, 25, sorry, Matthew chapter 25. Maybe you remember Jesus. He's teaching on the final judgment. He's showing how in the future there will be a day when all the nations are gathered and the goats and the sheep are separated. And he invites the sheep into their inheritance in verse verse 35. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. These are all the lowest, most daily, easy command, not easy, but most simple commands that God gave his people Israel. Just simple things. And Jesus goes on to describe the actions that were the opposite of people pleasing. Caring for someone who didn't matter. That's who these people represent. Who's someone who's hungry? Someone who ain't got enough money to buy their own food. Who's someone who's thirsty? Somebody who doesn't have land in their own well. Who's a stranger, a foreigner from another place, caring for these people who didn't matter in the eyes of their culture, and the result was eternal life. You see, if you, if you can't have an honest reputation at work and live with obvious integrity, oh, and then these people, they say, but Jesus, we didn't know we were serving you. They didn't know Jesus was watching. 
They weren't performing for the boss. They were living their life as they knew Jesus would want them to live. But verse 44, the goats, the goats, they say, but, but Jesus, we didn't know that you were here. We didn't see the hungry guy or the thirsty guy or the stranger, or we didn't see you in those people. See, they were waiting on Jesus to show up, and then they would have served him. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. They didn't see Jesus. They didn't serve the lowly. Uh, they say they, they couldn't be rewarded by the lowly, so they didn't serve those people. That's a goat. The sheep, doesn't matter who they see nor their prestige, they're honest. The goat wants to make sure everybody sees and notices and someone important is involved. If you're different before your boss, it's not impressive to the Lord because an honest reputation is consistent at work, no matter the client, no matter the boss. Why? Because we live for the glory of the Lord, not man. That's why 6th, middle of verse 22, Paul says, the one who pleases the Lord obeys their earthly master with sincerity of heart. See the contrast? Not by way of eye service people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Instead of a shady people pleaser, you wear your Savior on your sleeve. That's what this means, a singular devotion, singleness of heart, wholeheartedly. It's describing those whose service is rendered with a, a dedication, a sense of inner obligation, but not to their company, but to their Savior. There's an unwavering, consistent, and focused, steadfast, determined direction in your life and your work. It really has nothing to do with your earthly master. They receive the benefit. But you work and you labor and you produce to the best of your capabilities with a sincere heart because your heart is singularly focused on Christ. I love the story that Dallas Seminary professor Howard Hendricks tells about the time when he was on a flight and he watched a stewardess handle a drunk businessman, a family with a set of screaming twins and, and then some unruly passengers that were part of this whole mess. The flight sounded like a disaster, except for the stewardess. Despite the chaos and the disorder and the disrespect that she received and the multitude of challenges, this stewardess handed the, handled the passengers with politeness and dignity and courtesy that none of them deserved. And Dr. Hendricks, as he's exiting the plane, he asked this lady if there's a supervisor that he could write to, to American Airlines, to tell them what a, a great stewardess she was. This is back before email. And he records her response. He says, she says, well, sure, you can do that, but I don't actually work for a boss at American Airlines. My boss is Jesus Christ. What a boldness and beauty. What power and glory simply comes from this authentic effort aimed at glorifying Christ, even in serving sin-cursed and fallen and undignified humanity. I wonder what our lives would be like, what our work would be like if our attitude was more, my boss is Jesus Christ. I wonder if Christ would get more glory from our grind. I wonder if our hearts were sincere and everything that we did was always only just for Christ. If God would receive more glory from our grind, I trust he would. As we'll see next time as we pick up the end of verse 22, we have no options. Jesus is worthy of our whole life. And as we grow in loving him and knowing him, we learn that we also fear him with hearts of reverence. We treat work like worship to Christ. May we live our earthly calling for him. Let's pray. Father, help us. We need it. Our Savior deserves it. 
Give us humility to pursue likeness to him. Give us humility to take this work that you have given us and pour our lives into it for your glory. Give us a grace that we need, wisdom to live these things out. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.